From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Daniel Fulham from Tala has been released after 36 hours in custard, in custard, in custody. It was absolutely unbelievable. The water was crystal clear, palm trees. It was like being on a postcard nearly. He remains the only man to have called a donkey as a witness in a court of law. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. Advice from a seasoned traveller who's still only 20 years old. Time to take your shirt and tie out of the back of the wardrobe. Smart work attire is back. And if you're out running this evening, watch out for buzzards on the prowl. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's rocking the full Don Draper look, even as we speak. The newsings from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with Brendan Courtney, sitting in for Ryan, revealing his top days of the week to us, before weighing up the relative value of having an Irish passport. I think Friday is my favourite day of the week. Saturday comes in at a very close second. And oddly, I know they're my favourites because I'm not mad about a Sunday. I think it's probably just a student hangover dreading school on a Monday. I'm the kind of person I love a Christmas Eve, but I really don't love Christmas Day. Anyway, happy Friday. Um, It's a little known fact, but my life knows no bounds when it comes to glamour. And last night was no exception. I was... It was at, I, I saw it was a metaphoric ribbon cutting. It was a launch to end all launches. It was a momentous moment for my family as my mother unveiled her brand new downstairs toilet. At long last, the toilet's there. Five years after the documentary about my dad, my mother now has a downstairs toilet. Congratulations, Mum, and I hope you're not listening from it right now. <laughs> We're delighted for you, really and truly. But also, seriously, having a downstairs loo changes people's options as we grow older um, and it's wheelchair accessible, so I'm delighted. Today's show has a kind of an international feel. I'm going to be chatting to a travel vlogger who believes that it's possible to achieve an authentic travel experience long haul while on a budget and he's actually doing it. And in fact, it turns out that having an Irish passport, if you can get one, ooh, controversial, is one of the most powerful passports to have in the world, ahead of even the United States of America. Ireland and England are on a par in sixth place along with France and Portugal uh, with access, basically, that means to 187 countries without a visa. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The United States comes in seventh place, Germany and Spain, Pippus and come in third place with Finland, Italy and Luxembourg in joint fourth place, Denmark, Netherlands and Sweden in fifth place. Uh, the passport power chart is comes from a thing called the Henley Passport Index. And you might I'd want to know anyway, for 2022, Japan ranked as the most powerful passport in the world. They have access to 193 destinations without a visa before departure. I'll just finish it off then. In comparison, Russian travel documents are ranked 50th, China placed 69th and obviously and this is no surprise Afghanistan's passport unfortunately are the least useful the holder can only get into 27 countries which even 27 kind of surprised me has your passport ever let you down well 22 year old Shamrock Rover fan Daniel Fulham from Tala has been released after 36 hours in custard in custard in custody on, on well he probably felt like he was in custard on the Bulgarian border he was returning from an away match uh, officials didn't believe that he was the picture on his passport and they held him up for 36 hours last night on the Six Ones News his mother Nolene had this to say about it the first thing I'm going to do after I give him a hug is just I'm going to kill him because 
I remember when he had that photograph and I said, you know, would you not wait until the swelling goes down? But like most young people, I'm only his mother, so what would I know? (laughs) Well, he got released from custard, thank God, and he's okay now. (laughs) The charges didn't stick, but the custard did. Yeah, sorry. We never find out why his face was swollen when he got his passport photo taken, though, did we? Well, the musings on the news can't wait, because decades, nay, centuries, of Mammy's etiquette is suddenly in doubt. An article in the Irish Daily Mail today says, forget what Mammy said, we should be eating with our mouths open. This actually makes me shudder. Charles Spence, a psychology professor at Oxford University, said, we've been doing it all wrong. Parents instill manners in their children, extolling the virtues of chewing with their mouths closed. However, chewing open-mouthed may actually help to release more of the volatile organic compounds contributing to our sense of smell and the overall perception. So what he's basically saying, I think, is that it just improves the taste and sensation. Although, I just, I don't know about you, but I, it makes my skin crawl if somebody is eating near me with their mouth open. That can be prevented. Obviously, children is an exception. Um, but also, people, clicky jaws. People can't help a clicky jaw, but it, again, drives me mad. Uh, but I did read a really good book called Breathe by James Nestor. And uh, I've read it a couple of times. I've actually listened to it on audiobook as well. He says, scientifically, we should be breathing through our nose and chewing more root and raw food to improve our jaw strength. Uh, I accept that, but not with our mouths open. In fact, humans are the only mammals who mouth breathe, which is why we have crooked teeth. Now, no crooked teeth on Love Island, though. They're perfect teeth. That, that's another story for another day. No time for Love Island and today's newsings because such topicality is trivial compared to the news that you too have been given some sort of honour in the United States. I see you two have been listed amongst a stellar lineup of honorees by the uh, Kennedy Centre in America for their lifetime achievements in the creative arts, along with the likes of the actor George Clooney and music legend Gladys Knight. The band, you two had to say, we never imagined, this is a quote for them, that 40 years on from our first trip in the US, we would be invited back to receive one of the nation's greatest honours, they said. It's been a four-decade love affair with the country and its people, its artists and the culture. We consider America to be a home away from home. And we're very grateful to the Kennedy Centre Honours for welcoming us to this great clan of extraordinary artists. So if you're feeling the love for you two, there's an amazing U2 Dublin walking tour. It's leaving this Sunday at 12 o'clock from the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin and it will take you on all the historical places that have built the band. So the Gaiety Theatre, you two shot to fame there, some, uh, where they shot the videos sometimes, you can't make it at your own. Uh, then did the Dandelion Market, which is no longer there, but they'll show you where it was. Trinity, Temple Bar, it's very cute. But then somebody upstairs found that not only can you do a walking tour this Sunday, but on the 23rd of September, I absolutely love this, uh, you can do a U2 inspired Dublin Bay cruise and it plays music and you drink on board and you go out and you look at the vista of Dublin Bay and it's called A Beautiful Bay. It's a beautiful bay. OK, I won't sing anymore. Brendan, always leaving us wanting more. More acapella singing, more on Mammy's toilet, more musings. But no, that's all we've got. And we'll just have to live with that. Sinead Gibney, Chief Commissioner, Human Rights and Equality for Ireland, spoke to Philip Boucher-Hayes on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And Philip started by asking her if Ireland was walking the walk on human rights prior to the war in Ukraine. 
Sadly, no, I don't think we were walking the walk, particularly in terms of human rights for people seeking international protection here in Ireland. Um, And has the war made us up our game? I I mean, it has made us respond uh, to a very particular crisis. And I have to say uh, that the initial response was very positive in terms of the government um, really accepting without question uh, the temporary directive and and, and moving forward with that. Because credit where it's due. I mean, you look at the way in which agencies responded. People were being given a one-stop shop, their PPS number, their medical cards, access to social welfare. It really was quite impressive the 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 bureaucratic response at the very least. Yeah, the administrative response, I would say. And what it did, though, do is highlight how poor it is for those who weren't a part of that programme. So the people coming here from Ukraine were part of an EU-wide programme which immediately granted things like that, access to work, access to education and so on. Um, For many people in our international protection system, that is not the case. And they have had to continue with long delays, uh, without access to education, to housing, uh, to appropriate accommodation uh, or in some cases to employment um, because of the poor system that we have in place. And I think that's what the sadly I would say that no we weren't walking the walk because what we have continued to do with our international protection is be in crisis response mode and that mm-hmm. has been the case since direct provision was set up it was indeed set up in response to a crisis at the time which was unprecedented numbers around uh, the, the late 90s and early 2000s uh, and it has remained in place Okay so do we in effect now have a two tier system one for Ukrainians and one for everybody else? Yes absolutely that is uh, that is what's emerging at the moment and worsening and deepening as, as we proceed into this crisis. Um, and it's, I have to say, for those of us working in the sector um, and mostly for people who are already in the system, it really is very difficult to watch um, as those people who are coming here from Ukraine are welcomed rightly into society and able to participate in society as quickly as possible while they sadly uh, languish in, in, in a system that is yeah. u- inhumane. Now, I gave credit there for issuing people with PPS cards and medical cards, PPS numbers and medical cards and so on. But the fact of the matter is that refugee needs are significantly more complex than that and particularly now for those who have stayed in a war zone mm. for longer than those who were initially arriving here back in March and April. Yeah, and that is the pattern we see in a situation like this where the people who are coming further down the line are people who've probably had additional difficulty in getting out for various reasons, be it means, resources. Uh, some people initially, for example, people in institutions or some people who had um, status difficulty within Ukraine were finding it difficult to get out in the first place. So that's why we have recommended consistently uh, a trauma-informed approach to our international protection system with vulnerability assessments which really assess people's needs as they come into the country and provide accommodation and wraparound supports which meets those needs. And in my interaction with people in direct provision, you really can't understate how difficult the experience is for people. And I think if anything, uh, the war in Ukraine will teach people here in Ireland when we've seen it so up close that that is the situation for everybody else who coming into this international protection system who've come here in recent years from Syria and Afghanistan. These are the same identical situations of war-torn countries, uh, persecution where people have no choice but to flee and that's how they're arriving on our shores. And as traumatising as that situation that they're leaving behind in is as traumatised as they are, at what point do we start to do more damage when we don't provide the right kind of facilities for them? 
Well, I mean, I think it, it worsens. So I think the longer you're in a system, the more difficult it gets for people if they don't, if they can't participate into society. So absolutely, we need to look at that. But honestly, I think we need to have a bit of a, a, a you know, a shift in our mindset in this country and actually globally in terms of uh, how we deal with international protection. There are 100 million displaced people now globally, and that number is only going to increase, particularly mm. with the climate crisis. Uh, the movement of people is just simply a feature and a factor of our modern global world. So we need to see not just, we, we need to move away from language that describes refugees as a burden to our society um, and instead think about the net benefit. And that is well documented. The OECD put out research in 2017, which documented how an influx of refugees will increase, uh, will improve rather various dimensions within any society in, in, around labour. So if you're bringing in high skilled uh, people, um, how that will in, work towards innovation and business. Low skilled will help with wages and labour for the okay population already in place and so on. And given that we now live in a world where the United Nations is predicting 700 million people displaced by 2030 because of water scarcity, ongoing war and conflict and so on, what do you make of the debate around the idea of capping refugee numbers? Uh, I, I, I don't think it helps. I mean, I think particularly with Ukraine and, and within the, the parameters of the temporary directive, that isn't possible anyway. And I think that's right because we have a moral obligation to people who are fleeing that. But I think we just need to rethink the system. We need to look at this as a system, as we do any other system, the education system and so on. And we need to better coordinate across society. As I've just said, there is a benefit to bringing people into this country. And rather than continue with this mindset of it's a problem that needs to be fixed, we need to figure out how best to harness it and how best to cope with the fact that we have a globe where people move around more freely and where many, many people are dealing with situations where they simply cannot call anywhere home anymore. That's Chief Commissioner Human Rights and Equality for Ireland, Sinead Gibney, talking to Philip Boucher Hayes on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. Kenny's bookshop in Galway recently struck gold in an old book. Sarah Kenny from the bookshop spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon about the discovery. So back in May, um, our archivist here, Sarah Gallagher, was cataloguing a book and the book was an old prayer book. Um, It wasn't really worth much um, and she couldn't find a title on the title page. So she opened up the book to see it was was in a cover and she took the cover off to have a look at the spine to see what the title of the book was and tucked into the spine was a piece of paper which she took out and hidden inside it, wrapped around it about three times, were two solid gold coins. Um, They said on them 37.5 grams of poor oro which is pure gold. Pure, yes. <laughs> they were dated 1821 to 1947 and uh, had the emblem of the Mexican state on them. So uh, she knew immediately by the poor oro that uh, she, she struck was looking gold. at something special there <laughs> and that it was pure yeah, gold, yeah. even by, by the weight of them. Uh, so it was a very exciting discovery and not something we usually find in a book. Yeah. So, so you've obviously been doing a bit of research since May as to how they ended up inside the cover of this book. 
Yeah, so uh, the book, as I say, was part of the library that we purchased and it was one of 25,000 books. So the chances of finding it were, were even slim, slim those, yeah. right? And we, the first thing we did was contact those who we acquired the library from. Uh, they were happy to for, for us to, to hold on to them. Uh, you know, we didn't purchase the library off them expecting to find something like this. So we wanted to make them aware straight away. And we posted it up on our social media that we found the coins and we got a really positive response from from the public and the media. And within a couple of weeks, we had multiple inquiries from people who were interested in buying the coins. And we had people come into the shop who wanted to have a look at them. So... What uh, what diameter are they around, Sarah? um, They're... they're, mm, Let me see... Um, Kind of like a small, like bigger certainly than, you know, our coins of today. Yes. Maybe small, maybe the circumference of a small mug or something. Okay, um, right, right. So, you're, so talking, you're talking like two and a half inches or that. Yeah, like they're, they're substantial in size. Yes. And, and I say 37.5 grams in weight each. Yeah, um, so, so you so, know you have them in your hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can certainly feel feel the weight probably, of them. Probably um, like a, an Olympic medal, would it be? Would it be yeah, maybe just thing? a little smaller. A little smaller, um, We okay. actually, we have a, a photograph and a little video up on our social media yeah. if anybody wants to have a look at them. Um, they're really something special. So a lot of interest and people wanted to purchase them and you, you, you've sold them on. Yes, so we sold them for €4,600 to a private purchaser and we decided, as I say, that look, we weren't buying this library to find or or make money off (laughs) of anything like this. We decided a fitting thing to do would be to donate the money to charity. So we decided to split the proceeds in half and give half to the Galway Simon community, which are the homelessness charity in Galway and do terrific work for for the homeless and for preventing homelessness in Galway and the Irish Red Cross Ukraine appeal as we wanted to do something um, towards the the conflict in Ukraine and the Irish Red Cross do terrific work for supporting those who are arriving into Ireland. Two very deserving causes. Um, Yeah, yeah. so we had representatives from both charities come to the shop here during the week and we presented them both with large checks and the donations and they were absolutely thrilled particularly at the moment it's it's been a tough couple of years for charities to fundraise given COVID and that a lot of their regular fundraising opportunities uh, had stopped so Sarah Kenny from Kenny's Bookshop in Galway talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon I'm off to tear all my old books to shreds looking for hidden treasure don't judge me On this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, Winnie Amma, one of Northern Ireland's rising music stars, spoke to Brendan Courtney. So I started singing whenever I had a very bad breakup and I went to therapy and my therapist was like, you need to do something that made you happy when you were small. Something like go back to your, your roots, like the core things that bring you joy. That's cool. Yeah. And I, it took me a long time to work out what that was. Because I was, you know, you get caught up in life and just doing all the things that you have to do to get through to the next stage of life and pay your bills and all that. So then I, I was like, what did I like doing? And I loved I loved singing when I was really small. When I was like five, six, I'd be singing on the bus and probably harassing everyone and thinking <laughs> I was like making a good, good vibe and good energy. So I was like, I'll do singing. So I joined a music school so that after work I had something to look forward to because I was literally just like, what is life? So, yeah. 
That's that was that was it, just for fun. You have the most amazing accent. I <laughs> absolutely love it. It's just incredible. It's really lovely and, and totally unique. So you wrote for other art- artists first, and then decided you'd sing your own songs. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I never really. I never like decided to be a singer or a writer. It was all just like happenstance. So it was just just one of those one of those things that just became. So I was whenever I joined that music school, I was just writing little bits and pieces and putting them on Facebook because my friends were like, "Okay, oh, send me that thing." It was like instead of sending this to twelve individual people, I just post it. So then one of my friends who I um, met a few years before that. So I met this guy in the street um, in Budapest. And we became friends. As you do. Yeah. 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 And we became really good friends. And we were just like, I'd invite him to parties and just have lunch, like just, just like whatever. And um, because there weren't many people that spoke good English. So any person who spoke good English in Budapest, (laughs) you're my friend. Yeah. So um, then he was like, oh, I didn't know that you sang songs. And I was like, kind of. Yeah. And um, I was writing music. I was writing songs on music I'd borrowed from YouTube. And so I, I saw that he made music and I was like, can you make me some music so I can write something original? And he was like, yeah. So then I wrote something and sent it to him and he was like, oh, I like it. Can I use it? I was like, you can keep it. It's yours for free. No problem. We're friends. And he called me up straight away. He's like, Winnie, this is not how the music industry works. Oh, wow. I was like, I'm not in the music industry. <laughs> so that was like my first song. And, and he, yeah. he, was a, he was a mentor. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. So you, 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 so you give off this lovely energy and you meet this person in Budapest and next of all he tells you how it works and here you are now talking to me about exactly. it. Exactly, it's absolutely insane. So was music in the career plan when you were in school? No way. No, really? No way, no way, no way. And I don't think anyone in my family would have entertained it either. They're, even at the start, they're like, okay, Winnie. But I think the main thing is I was having fun. I was looking at the things that, brought me joy I like using my voice I like making something out of nothing I like creating good energy and in the room like creating good vibes and I'm not very good at telling jokes but singing is like more natural to me so I feel like following the really basic elements of the things that made me happy or what brought me here Uh, you're obviously a very independent strong human uh, and your gap year was quite interesting tell us about that yeah so I went to New Orleans um, to New Orleans yeah, New Orleans, um, which was very fun. It was quite, yeah. I, so I always wanted to be a nun when oh, I was young. Okay. Because I just thought it's such a beautiful job because you get to help people all the time. You get to travel usually. You, it just seems like very like pure and nice and like fulfilling. Yeah. So I always wanted to be a nun and I never really found like how to do that. And then I joined this neo-monastic community which is a modern day monastery you are amazing with you <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you had to wear the full outfit okay gotcha so you wear your normal clothes although you have to wear conservative clothes you cannot show lots of skin and the idea was that you find people who are in need and you help them yep. very simple so I worked in a in a food bank in a soup kitchen in a school lots of kids had lots of kids had um, PTSD because it was um, like it was a few years after Hurricane Katrina but it was still like present in like in the society and I discovered jazz music there so it was when I arrived it was Mardi Gras and that is a whole different world so while you're going through your life thinking about being a nun helping people in a community in New Orleans music is constantly coming around yeah. you 
Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like popping his wee head up and just having a good time here and there. But I never tied it all together until I had this, I guess, a breakdown, a breakdown and then a rebuild where I reassessed, like assessed everything and put all the pieces together. And I was like, why don't I do this? Okay. So you went to university after New Orleans. Yeah. And what did you study? I did politics, philosophy and economics. Okay, not for the faint-hearted. How was that? <laughs> that was great. Was it? Yeah, I loved it. So good. So I also wanted to be a politician. So that was also in my mind from when I was young because I thought, again, how can I help people? So none, politician, very different, but both have like a similar, if you have like good intentions, a similar goal in mind okay. of helping people. So I did PPE because I wanted to understand the world and how it works and all the different mechanisms of like the, the institutions and how they affect each other. So yeah, that was fun. So tell me your experience of growing up in Belfast. I love Belfast. So I think everyone should visit Belfast because it's just such a great place. I think the people there are very kind, very loyal, very honest. Um, and quite straightforward. So my good friends are like my friends when I was tiny. So uh, if you're comfortable uh, telling me, how do you identify? I would say I'm Northern Irish Ghanaian. Okay, very good. Yeah. Ghanaian, I said it right, didn't I? Yeah. And um, your parents uh, came from uh, Ghana. Yeah. And what did they work at? So they both moved to Belfast to do their PhDs at Queen's University. So education's high on their priority, right? Yes. So oh, what? yeah. <laughs> okay. So you were going to uni whether oh, you like. Oh, 100%. Okay. There's no other option there. Everyone in my family has been to uni. It's not negotiable. So, <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, yeah, so my dad did um, ophthalmic surgery, so like an eye surgeon. And my mum did anthropology, study wow. of cultures. And you are one of five? Yes. And, and what, uh, all girls? All girls. Other singers? No, no, no. No, they think I'm the weird one for you, sure. You're the outlier. I'm definitely the outlier. They're always baffled by me. So with your surgeon dad and your anthropological mum and the, all the education and you've done your degree, so you're fine. How do they feel about you doing music? No, they're very happy about it and they're like, oh, I knew it. <laughs> like, <laughs> did you? Because I didn't even know it. <laughs> So they're very supportive. I think um, I think they the main thing is they, they want me to be happy and they want me to make sure I make enough money to survive. Those are the two critical things. And now they're happy. Uh, so your song, Here I Go, which is absolutely brilliant, has been chosen to promote further education and training courses as well as apprenticeships for Leaving Cert students on the CAO website uh, in Ireland. How, how did that come about? They emailed me and... Just like that? Yeah. And I think it's a perfect match because the song is about um, discovering your purpose and getting over your self-doubt. So I realised something, um, I wrote this in lockdown and it was like a reflection of the past like few years in my short time in music where at the start... And when I was a teenager, I used to be so awkward. I couldn't look you in the eye and have this conversation. Really? I'd be freaking I can't imagine out. that. I'd be literally like, I, I'd be on the, like trying to get out of it in any way possible. I'd have panic attacks. I'd be sweating. I'd be freaking out. And, um, and then I got over it because I realized that there's two, there's two voices generally that you hear, both internally and externally, positive and negative. And, why Why do sometimes we pick the negative one? Like, there's no real reason to pick it. 
So whenever I started proactively picking the positive voice, whether it was my friend saying, you're good at this, or why don't you try that, or why not? That's when everything started to go well. So I think it's a great match because um, with this campaign, the FET, uh, it's about finding your purpose and, and learning new skills and like making something out of nothing, like learning. And you must be so proud that whoever the powers would be at the CAO website saw the song, got the message and thought this is, and actually it is your story. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely insane. <laughs> insane. That's the very impressive singer Winnie Ama talking to Brendan Courtney on this morning's Brian Turberty Show. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Philip Archer Hayes posed the question, did an Irishman, known as Humanity Dick, really pioneer every major piece of animal rights legislation? Author Peter Phillips was on hand to provide the answer. It, it was the first piece of formal legislation on, on a statute book, yes. I mean, he, he predates it. He had his own animal rights law in Connemara um, in the years leading up to, to um, him going into Parliament. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> What fascinated me about Richard Martin was I, I read um, just a little bit in a guidebook many years ago, or 20 years ago, when the book first came out, saying, you know, all Panama rights laws stem back to this uh, this Irishman who, who ill-treatment of cattle act, etc. But he, paradoxically, he was the champion duelist of Ireland. I thought, that's a bit bizarre. <laughs> I mean, so he'll, he'll blow your head off if you passed him the mustard pot in the wrong direction. Yeah, there's plenty of people who have more know. time for animals than they do for humans. Maybe it's This not. is true. But this is true. Tell me a little bit more about him before we get into the animal rights stuff. A bit of a rogue, by all accounts. He was, yeah, he was... Um, he was called Humanity Dick, not not because of his animal rights um, pioneer campaigning. It's because he he didn't charge, wouldn't overtax his tenants in in Connemara. Uh, he he preferred to live off smuggling commissions on the Connemara using the Connemara coastline. He he lived in what is now Ballinhinch Castle, uh, which is a you know a five star hotel these days. But in those days, it was a a rundown house that he lived in to put thirty miles of bog between him and his creditors. He, he lived his life in spectacular <laughs> insolvency. He was a champion duelist, and then it was he was in his sixty. He was in and out of Parliament for for many years, and he, he was quite pivotal in in the in the cause for Catholic emancipation. But he he developed his own animal rights law. Yeah, but hang on, before we go on to that, because there's a little tale to be told in how he got drummed out of Parliament as well. <laughs> yeah, he was um, uh, about two years after he got the legislation on, and he was driving horse behind the SPCA. He was hauled up, a bit like Boris Johnson is at the moment. He was hauled up before a, a parliamentary inquiry and and accused of rigging the Galway election. And his his defence was. Well, everybody rigs the Galway election. You'd have to rig the Galway election to get elected. <laughs> oh, it's novel. All right. So then the, the animals piece, as you say, he uh, started this and started legislating for animal cruelty in Connemara first. What did he do? Well, he, he passed his own law. He, he goes back, uh, the Martin family were one of the tribes of Galway and the Martins sort of went out of the city and ended up... But basically, his estate was the, the whole of Connemara, apart from Clifton Town. And it go back another three or four generations and his his family had baronial powers. He, he, he was sort of lord and master in Connemara. He had a little private army and he could pass his own laws. So he, he used to... He had laws. If he saw somebody or heard of somebody 
mistreating an animal, he'd haul them up before his own court, and he used to lock them up in um, it was Grony Wales Castle. If you know if you know the oh. area, the lake behind Ballin the Hinch has got a a deserted castle, and that's where he used to lock. Is that, is that the one on the they, island in the middle of the lake? That's it. Yeah, that was that was the prison he used to to lock up miscreants he saw or heard of abusing animals. Wow. Okay. But what it was. The fact that he got the animal rights law, and you have to look back in the 1820s, it was absurd. Nobody had even considered rights for animals. He was he was lampooned, but he got the legislation through quite cleverly in Parliament. But the very next day, he stormed into Smithfield Market and started arresting people. Hang on, Smith, now, Smithfield, Smithfield in, in London. Yeah, he he spent two years like a whirling dervish around the streets of London arresting people. He had this sort of dueling mentality, had no sense of danger or anything. Then he'd stand up in court and he'd be the prosecuting barrister because he was teaching the judiciary. He remains the only man to have called a donkey as a witness in a court of law. <laughs> but it was a publicity stunt. He, he was he was quite clear. He was ahead of his time in, in spinning what he needed to to, to get public okay, opinion but, on but his But sorry, as, as he's stalking around Smithfield finding people <laughs> to arrest and then prosecute, what age of a man would he have been by this stage? He was in his 60s. OK, so <laughs> clearly uh, not risk-averse. Certainly not risk adverse. He was, uh, we, I mean, it, 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 there's actually a stage musical of his life in production. And um, the marketing people behind it came up with a great phrase. They, it's the Irish Hamilton. It's the band nobody had ever heard of that was actually a lot more important than people thought he was. Okay. Talk to me about the, the legacy then uh, and the SPCAs. Were they set up in his lifetime or did they just flow from the legislation? No, no. He he was the driving force behind it. It was about 1824, so two years after the um, his, he got his law on the statute books. He's still in Parliament. And um, there was a lot of do-gooders out there, a lot of people in society, in the establishment, who who wanted to do something about animal welfare. But he was the pragmatist. He was the dualist. He's the, he was the man who thumped the table. I, I read a, a report written in the Times at the, at the time of the, the first meeting of what became the SPCA. It was in what was wonderfully called Old Slaughter's Coffee House, which is near the Covent Garden area of London. And the report was it was it was the Irishman Richard Martin who was banging the table and saying, "Be Jesus, I'll do something about this." He was the driving force. They, they didn't want to acknowledge it for a long time because a year later he was thrown out for rigging the Galway election. And who was the focus of his ire? Was it farmers? Was it agriculture? Was it the um, the uh, you know the, the dog owner who casually beats their dog? Who was it that most annoyed him, or was it everybody? It was everybody. It was it was just cruelty. I mean, obviously, you know, he he was a man of the country. He knew, you know, animals have to be herded from in one direction to another direction, and and, and probably killed to eat, be eaten. He wasn't he wasn't. Uh, uh, he, 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 he wasn't um, uh, pioneering vegetarianism. He was pioneering welfare for animals. And I think, I think if he was alive or came back today, he would be disappointed that in 200 years his welfare laws haven't progressed as much as he mm. wanted to. That's author Peter Phillips talking to Philip Boucher Hayes on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne about the Irishman known as Humanity Dick.
Caller Brendan told Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline the tale of how he was attacked by a flying hazard while out on a run. Brendan Ahern. Brendan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. What happened? <clears throat> well, Joe, a couple of years ago, I was training for the Cork City Marathon. Okay. And I parked my car as usual. Um, it's over a back road to Clamel, where I go training uh, every day. And I was about a, <clears throat> a hundred yards into my run. Mm-hmm. And I got this all-merciful, mighty punch from behind. It felt like someone actually hit me with a fist. So was great the power of the punch. Okay. And I hit the deck, I hit the road, and I put my hand on the back of my head and noticed there was a lot of blood coming from me. Okay. And I looked up and I couldn't see anything. There was nothing, nothing around. But, but at the same time, I knew exactly what it was. It was actually a buzzard. A which buzzard? actually hit uh, me on the back of the head and um, drew blood. And um, I, <clears throat> I um, got up and decided to go back to my car, and I did. And, um, you know, my, the back of my head was still bleeding at this stage. So okay. I, I did go home, and I went to the doctor, and I got a tetanus uh, um, job done. And that's, um, that's, um, that, that was fine. Um, but um, uh, before that, um, he was uh, constantly around the area watching me. And on mm. a number of occasions, he actually did come at me, but never actually came down close enough to hit me on the head. But um, this, on this occasion, I don't know where he came from. He's actually watching me in the trees somewhere, and he just came behind me. And um, I couldn't finish my run at that a buzzard. stage. Buzzard? How, bi- how big is a buzzard? They're, they're huge. They're huge, Joe. Uh, if you look them up on YouTube, uh, they're, they're, the wingspan um, are absolutely massive. I actually never... <laughs> I heard them years ago, but I actually didn't realize that they were actually in this country because I've been training for the last about mm-hmm. 25 years over in this area. And I've never had this experience before, never happened to me before. But but three weeks ago, I decided to change my run. And um, I went to a different area. And what happened to me then, again, I was only gone about 100 yards. And all of a sudden, um, at the side of my head, this this bang I got again on, on the side of my head. Uh, pretty, pretty awesome now. And a full force on the side of my head. And his, his right wing actually came over my head and, wow. and almost stayed on my head for, for about 10 seconds. And as he drew along the side of my head, uh, he took off, uh, went up into trees. I got up off the ground. I decided to keep running. But as I did, he came out of trees again. He came at me a second time. Oh, so I had to turn around well, and go he, back. What's he? Are you a threat? Are you a, a predator? Are you a food source? I, it's, it, well, Joe, I I found out uh, in the meantime that um, uh, I could be a threat because they're uh, breeding. Uh, someone told ah. me that they're actually breeding, and maybe my pounding on the road and I actually wear a high vis vis and maybe that sort of thing as well uh, kind of get me away because they're actually watching me in the trees but as I said with this fella the second time came at me he actually came at me three times but the only way I could defend him off at this stage was I had to get a, a big stick and put it over my head this and get back to the car as quick as I could this is like something out um, of an Alfred Hitchcock movie <laughs> well I tell you now, it was pretty, pretty 
it was frightening. There's no doubt about it. I uh, very very scary because uh, it's it's something you don't expect. I expect you know I wouldn't expect it to happen to me ever, but when I expected to happen once, I I was I was for five years over that same area and nothing ever happened. Now I see the buzzards up in the sky and they're always around in the trees. But on this occasion, he decided to come. Again. I don't know whether it's the same fella was actually watching me after five years, but but he got me again anyway, and um, it was really really scary. It really was. And did you have to go to the doctor? Well, not in this occasion, Joe. I I felt that you know when I got the tetanus there a couple of years okay, ago. Okay, you got the I, you got I, the original I, I felt, tetanus. I felt, okay. okay, it was it was the force of the blow which was severe. Um, you know, their 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 um, claws are seem to be very very powerful. Um, okay. As I said, if, Okay. If you see them on, on look up on YouTube, or you've probably seen them around. They're, they're very common now all around the area. They're every place. Okay, Mark, they are. They're in Dublin as well. Mark, good afternoon. What happened to you? Yeah, no, i just laughing at that man there because the same thing happens. Like, it, 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 it is scary. I, I was out for a walk there. This was last summer. So we've had the same um, buzzard around here for the last three years. And like three years ago, she, there was guys out running and my nephew was one and she'd done the same thing. But last summer, it was Sunday morning and I had, I had the earphones on and I was listening to John Bowman on a Sunday morning because I'll never forget it. And next minute, I got a slap at the back of the head. It was like someone hit you. Your mother hit me with a wooden spoon. Okay. And it's right. I, I, I did get a fright. There's no doubt about it. And I looked up and there she was and she flew down and then she came back up again. But you don't run. And like, so I, I, I'd been walking that way a fair bit. And um, so I'd done it for the next couple of days, Joe. And the same thing, she'd come over and I used to get a little branch and she'd, she'd, she's really fast. And I did get on to Birdwatch Ireland and their span, their, her, she's about two metres of, of a wingspan and she is quite big. But this particular mother, and I was looking at her the other day and she was teaching the young one, it was majestic, how to hunt. And she's out there every morning now and she's, she's you, she, like, you, you can hear her, like, she's teaching her and she's talking to her okay. and the screams of her. But she's been in the area here for, for three years. And do you and reckon it's the same? Buzz- when they're nesting. Do you think it's the same buzzard buzzing you? Oh, it is. It's the same buzzard, Joe. That, how I, do you I, know? I know her, I know her, I know her by name. <laughs> Now, you know, <laughs> you know where the mark she leaves in the back of your head. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about me. Mother often left me one, but she does but something similar. But she's just she's just being protective uh, from from her young, and it's, she's had three different nests in same area, but just different locations. And she's been there. For, she's been around for the last three years, and it is it is kind of scary. And we're on a WhatsApp group in the area here, and I see one of the mums put up a message there. One of the daughters, and she was. It is scary when she flies over, and she's very protective. But, like, they originated from Donegal and kind of Northern Ireland, and now they, mm. only, they seem to be coming much, they're much more prevalent kind of further okay, south. Well, that's caller Mark ending that scary buzzard-related discussion from this afternoon's Live Line. Back on the Ryan Tuberty Show, and Brendan Courtney spoke to travel vlogger Adam Duffin, who has stated that his goal is to show that it's possible to achieve an authentic travel experience while on a budget. The 20-year-old, yes, 20-year-old, is currently working two jobs in Port Leash to save money for more travelling. You were bitten by the travel bug when you had an amazing opportunity. I was really impressed by that. You got to travel to Zambia with secondary school. Yeah, they do it every two years. They pick 16 lads and they take them on an immersion project to Zambia, to Livingston. And how old were you? 
I was 17 at the time. And tell so me I about, think the what? youngest was 16 and then the oldest was 18. And so what, do you, did, of, what do you do when you're out there? Um, so during the day, we're in a primary school. Yeah. So we get split up into three different primary schools. We get dropped out there. We teach for about four or five hours, depending you know how far out you are. Then it's kind of, it depends on the teacher. Some of us had free range to do whichever we'd like. Math, science, um, teach them a bit of Gaelga, um, sing songs with them, things like that. <laughs> and then other teachers had an idea of what they wanted to taught. So we did that during the morning. And then in the evenings, we went to Lubassi Home. It was an orphanage. And yeah, just chat with the kids, play soccer with, play soccer with them. Uh, some of the lads that had longer hair let the girls braid it, things like that. <laughs> so letting their hair get braided and teaching them the teaching them Irish. Wow, how did that exactly, go down? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> did that, what, what was their favourite phrase to teach them? Uh, they loved the word "bui" for some reason. Oh, I love that word. Actually, it's just a Friday yeah. word, isn't it? Uh, okay. Yeah, what was it actually? I'm fascinated about that experience because it sounded like it could have gone one way or the other. That experience could have put you right off travel, or but what was it about it that really made you want to travel more? Um, I think it was really getting immersed in the culture. I mean, that that was the idea of it. Like, it was an immersion project, right. and even getting to stroll up the road with the teachers and go to the market that was on, like that was completely different to anything you'd see on your normal, you know, holiday to Lanzarote or it's Paris and things like that. Like, it was just completely different. And then as well as that, speaking to the children. And one day we got to go and help out in a clinic and you get brought to where the clinic is and basically outside somebody's house. So you just end up chatting with the adults and, you know, their way of life is just completely different. I think that really, really fascinated me. So you got to really see how other people around the world actually live as opposed to just taking photographs of tourist attractions. Exactly, yeah. You got to actually like speak with them, see how they go about their normal days, like different things they do at the weekends and yeah, just basically how they live really. So then you decided, okay, after secondary school, you're going to study wildlife biology. Yeah, that was a, a short stint. What happened? <laughs> um, well, it was during 2020 when I finished school, so that was COVID year, so maybe that had an effect on it. Of course. But it was a science degree, so I was just sat in front of the laptop for about eight hours a day, yeah. and that really didn't appeal to me. Yeah. So after two months, I, I think it was after about six weeks, I decided I don't think this is for me. Stuck at it for another two weeks and then decided, no, that it wasn't for me. So then I left and picked up the job in the mail centre for a year and a half. Saved up. And then you started your travels a little uh, in and around Ireland, is that right? Yeah, so uh, as restrictions eased and we were able to travel around Ireland, I I bought myself a GoPro and a drone and started travelling around uh, like, like Dunmore East, uh, Connemara, places like that. And I really, really enjoy it. And had you so you had you bought the drone so with it, you were doing it with the view to actually shoot it and capture it. Yeah, that was that was my idea. I was like, if I was like, I actually want to show people Ireland. Very nice. And had you done? You hadn't done anything like that before. No, not at all. This was uh, very very foreign to me. I think the, the whole editing thing I kind of get from my father. 
he's big into photography and things like that so I'd probably get that from him Oh very good so you captured Ireland you started to get a bit of confidence and next of all you bite the bullet and you head to Central America wow Yeah it was originally meant to be Thailand but they had stopped applications for the Thai visa so I thought okay where's where's next and yeah, I flew into Panama City on the 23rd of January. Wow. I feel like I was there with you because I did, as I said, trolled right through your TikTok and your Instagram life. So it's really quite amazing. So tell us about that. Were you, were you solo or were you with a friend? Uh, I was solo for about two, two and a half months. And then a friend joined me in Guatemala. But yeah, the first, first two months of that were solo. And how was that? Um. To be honest, I thought it was going to be a little bit worse. I think if you, like, I thought I'd find myself on my own a lot more. You were literally, when, you went into this blind, didn't you, really? You didn't really know what it was going to be like. Yeah, I mean, apart from YouTube videos and, like, blog posts and things like that, I, I mean, it's very tough to prepare yourself for something like that because you really don't know what it's going to be like. Yeah. So where did your travels take you? Come on, get us all excited on a Friday about where you went in Central America. Um, so I flew into Panama City. So that was, I think that was a really nice place to start because it's quite developed. Gorgeous. I've never been to Miami, but apparently it's, like, it's meant to be similar in the way it's developed to Miami. But that was really nice. So I was in a hotel for one night because I arrived quite late and then started staying in hostels. And then as I went to each hostel, people would give me like tips on where they're after coming from because some people travel north to south, some people go south to north mm-hmm. and they might tell you like, oh, stay here, stay there. So then I went and stayed in this hostel that was basically in the jungle. It was wow. called the Lost and Found Hostel. <laughs> and people then recommended me to go to Bocas del Toro, which is like a group of small islands in northern Panama. Yeah. And... I think that's where, like, I, I realised how in, enjoyable it was. Like, it was absolutely unbelievable. The water was crystal clear, palm trees. It was like being on a postcard, nearly. Travel vlogger Adam Duffin, who, it can't be stressed enough, is only 20, making us all a little bit jealous talking about all the exotic places he's travelled to or plans to travel to on this morning's Ryan Turberty Show. Finally on Playback Daily, has the predicted demise of the suit and tie in the workplace post-pandemic failed to materialise? Today with Clare Byrne reporter Brian O'Connell was on the case this morning. Casual wear, it would seem, is not the new normal in some work environments. And all this stems from recent fashion shows in Paris and Milan where the tailored suit was said to have made a comeback. Somewhat oblivious, you have to say, to the cost of living crisis many people face. So it's out with the shorts and sandals, sorry Marty, and back in with the shirt tie and perhaps a jacket. I really hope not. Joe Duffy gave me a very loud dressing down in the car park outside the radio centre on Tuesday for presenting the programme in what he called a vest <laughs> as he stood there in 29 degrees of heat in his wool waistcoat. I said nothing. There's no arguing with Joe. He's just a complete dandy. Um, 
you started your investigation into this issue with um, one of our better known men's tailors and suit retailers, Louis Copeland, yeah, whose I mean, interest it is obviously in to tell people to wear shirts and ties. Exactly. I mean, this is cutting edge uh, journalism, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I called in to Nigel O'Sullivan, who's in Louis Copeland and Academy Street in Cork, and we went up to the third floor, where, which is their made to measure department. Now, Nigel is in the business a long time, and he says the demise of the shirt and tie has been predicted before, and he never feared it wouldn't come back. And as you said, I suppose he would say that, wouldn't he? This is Nigel. The suit and tie never left us. What happened first was everybody wanted dress suits for their weddings because the weddings uh, were quite small again. So everybody went into dress suits, wearing black tie. So they might have spent a little bit more. Yes. They were sick of sitting at home uh, wearing casuals. So they said, let's look like um, James Bond. You could say really black and white. Uh, Ties are always a big part of suiting. And uh, we always knew that was never going to happen. Uh, I, th- I think it was, oh, geez, uh, it was uh, 2003, uh, the Dutch tried to bring in uh, Casual Friday. We've seen this before, and it always goes back into suiting again. So, so this is part of a trend, do you think, over the last 20-odd years? Yes. yeah. Where there'll be attempts to go more and more casual. What about people returning to the workplace? Yeah, I was just going to say it. I had a guy in from Waterford, and, and when they all came back, and he was coaxing people back into work, and first they were all wanted a safe environment, and... So um, when he went in, everything was going grand, but his second in command, um, they were supposed to go to a meeting, and he came in and he wasn't appropriately dressed for the meeting. He felt, he, he just felt uncomfortable bringing him to this particular meeting because he knew the people he was meeting were going to be shirt and tie. So what he did, he called a meeting in his own, in his own um, business, you could say, and he said, um, okay, lads, I want you all back in shirts and ties. Bit of a kickback, he said. People were saying, you know, like, do we really have to do it? Can we do it on Friday? So what he did, he started with uh, Friday tie day. So everybody had to wear the Friday. Uh, they all had to wear a tie. And then slowly he realised that the lads started wearing a tie on Monday. Hey, devil's advocate, what difference does it make to how you perform your job as to whether or not you've got a tie around your neck? <sighs> I feel naked without a tie. I don't like the sound of that workplace. I mean, that's basically a boss saying, dress like me, isn't it? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know what the nature of the meeting was. Um, mm. And I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I can't, I'd say my confirmation day was the last time I wore a shirt and tie. <laughs> Perhaps it's a generational thing, Brian, here. Or, or do you think that there are certain sectors with higher dress code standards? Well, I thought I might have put that theory to the test actually so I went to the South Mall area of Cork City yesterday it's traditionally the legal and financial heart of the city there's no denying if you went back say 30 40 years perhaps the majority of workers were wearing suits now of those I spoke to yesterday who still feel the need to dress quite formally this is some of the reasons why they do well I'm kind of only new to the to the scene so I said when I'm starting out I think it's better to wear a shirt and tie as opposed to going casual when I'm just starting, you know. So if you arrived in now with the Birkenstocks on and the yeah. uh, and the shorts, you don't think it, it wouldn't... Or even an open-neck shirt? Yeah. You don't think? You no, know, I'd, I'd feel happier myself wearing the shirt and tie, yeah. Because I, I thought the young, younger generation, your generation, mm-hmm. might set the tone, if you like, that the shirt and tie might be seen with an older generation. Yeah, I think sometimes, definitely with the bigger, the bigger firms and stuff, I think they might, as you're saying, leading the way in that respect but I think um, you know it's still quite traditional here on, on the South Mount so I think I'll have to, to stick with that for the time being Have you a selection of ties or is that the only one? Uh, I have a few now right yeah 
Uh, they're expensive, and so are shirts. And yeah. the cost of living crisis is very real, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's just something you have to factor in, I suppose, really. Yeah. The office staff w- would have a casual Friday. What does wearing a shirt and tie, what difference does it make, really? Well, I suppose it's convention, really, more than anything else. And do you notice any difference to how, say, the younger generation under the age of 30 are dressing? Oh, very much so. Younger people, generations behind me, would be very much casual, or smart casual as well. But in the legal profession, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say the old traditions are being upheld in relation to shirt and tie and jacket. I always remember the managers in Dunn stores during the time of old Ben Dunn or, or even young Ben Dunn would always be going around in shirt and tie. Not anymore. That's a sign of the times too. And the cost of it, the last thing I'll leave you with, because we know the cost of living crisis is there, and sure. it's not inexpensive to maintain a shirt and tie. I mean, unless you go to Paris like Charlie Hoy did for his shirts. Uh, shirts are very reasonable these days. <laughs> Do you know something, though, Brian, there's uh, something that confounds that idea of Gen Z not uh, wearing the suits. My colleague here, Sheila, has just reminded me of the race days at Punchestown, at Leopardstown, the university days of the races, when you see the young lads in particular. My God, those suits are neatly pressed and finely tailored. Have you ever noticed that? Well, that's so true. I think I even saw our colleague Barry Lenehan in a suit. No, I doubt that very much. <laughs> Never out of the Kerry GAA strip. Um, so, presumably, in this most testing piece of journalism mm-hmm. that you've probably mm-hmm. ever conducted in your career, you, you did actually also talk to those who don't feel the need to wear suits. Yeah, I've gone to huge lengths, really, haven't I? I mean, on the South Mall is a place called the Republic of Work. It's a space for co-working for established and for startup companies, so it provides quite a flexible working space. So, I was in there... When I was in there, Philip, they told me just one person wears a shirt and tie. He's involved in the legal profession. Now, most people would wear smart casual shirts. Some people were in shorts, quite casual dress, really. So I spoke to office manager Yvonne and operations manager Caroline because I just wanted to get a, a female perspective on whether or not it mattered how you dress in the office now. So Caroline Kennedy is first up in this clip. We have a lot of people who come in and they say that they actually feel uncomfortable sat here in a a suit and a tie. It's quite a relaxed environment. In itself, the atmosphere doesn't suit the formal dress code. Is there anyone in here who wears a shirt and tie? Uh, We do have one guy, but he will only wear it on the days that he's meeting with clients. He sticks out like a sore thumb here, obviously. Does he get bullied? Uh, No, we do always comment on it, though. We do always say to him, what's the occasion? That's Caroline Kennedy. Ending Brian O'Connell's report on smart versus casual workwear on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time on Monday. Until the next time though, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.